Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman. I'm a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, where we have started the Product Management Center, and we are trying to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And to do that today, we are bringing you, all of you, no matter where you are around the globe, an opportunity to learn from two brilliant product leaders in gaming And so we've got somebody from Minecraft here. David, I think, is also a UW alum and generous supporter of the UW. So, David, I'll I'll turn to you first to just quickly share a little bit about yourself. Hi, thanks, Professor Shulman. So I'm I am a uh, a double alum of the University of Washington Foster School of Business. I was actually an alum back in 2002 as an undergrad when it was just called the UW School of Business. And I came back to Foster in uh, 2015 to complete my MBA in 2018. So I've been kind of a double alumni of the school. So a little bit of background about myself. I am a product management lead at Mojang Studios, which is the division of Microsoft Xbox Game Studios. We are the makers of Minecraft. And so I help conduct landscape analysis and product management practices across uh, the studio been in this industry for about 17, 18 years now, been a product manager for the last 10. All right. Thank you, David, for joining us. I'm excited to have this conversation. We've talked a lot about product management in general, and this is, I think, our first deep dive into a specific industry. And if you like what you're hearing and want to hear a different industry, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, and we could do an industry-specific focus uh, for another episode. This one is for gaming. Uh, We're going to get into the specifics of gaming, but I think uh, you'll find that A lot of what we talk about is going to apply beyond it, but gaming product management is going to be the lens by which we talk about how to succeed. Speaking of success, Raul, we've successfully seen your kids grow up as you started having a sleeping child over a year ago as you would listen in on these these podcasts and and now think that they were talking back to you last time. (laughs) So Raul, from coast to coast in New York, a product manager at Fluent, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your journey as a product manager. Yeah, thanks for... uh... Thanks for having me. I'm sorry, my voice is a little, a little snarly. I got a little something, something. I don't know what, but yeah, I think we, you've heard my kids grow up this past couple of years, so that's uh, uh, it's been a journey. But yeah, I've been also in the industry, uh, mobile game industry, for about 15 years. Been a product manager for probably 11 of those, 11 or 12. And I started uh, after SUNY Binghamton. I started uh, working in focus groups with GameLaw. Been there, was there for about eight years and moved up the ranks from uh, working with market research to uh, to production game producer, scrum master, product owner, all the good stuff. Venturing out to uh, the Tops company, card trading company, working on the digital apps, and then also working with an IoT company, Heed, which was super fun, where we put sensors on athletes and track their analytics, and and we made uh, digital cards and, and mobile apps. So a lot of a lot of fun stuff throughout the career, but I found uh, just mobile gaming and having entertainment in your pocket is kind of like my passion and what I fell in love with. So thanks for calling me to have this. This is this is great. I'm happy to be here. 
Awesome. Glad to have you as a, a panelist from the beginning. You've hopped on stage giving some brilliant insights from time to time. So glad to have you here. Focus on you and David and Sumeya, resident product expert or product expert in residence. Tell us uh, why should people who are not in gaming, why should they care about what we have to talk about specifics to gaming, such as the metrics that matter, the uh, trade-off between engagement and monetization, and the ethics of addiction, or whatever you would call it that drives the engagement. Why should somebody outside of gaming care about this conversation, Sumeya? Yeah, I think I'm excited about this conversation. I know Raul and I have had some conversations in the past just to learn from each other. I find cross-industry pollination to be one of the best ways for product managers to innovate on what they're doing. So if you are working on a pharmaceutical product or you are working on a financial product, what is going on in gaming that you can learn from, that you can experiment with, that's going to help you leapfrog or do better for your customer? I think there are so many opportunities there. What I love about gaming specifically is their iteration and life cycle is hyper fast relative to other industries. And so there is a lot to learn there when it comes to experimentation, you know, the way they look at data. And I'm excited to dig deeper. I feel that gaming is one of these areas that if you're really interested in, it does you well to talk to people who have been working on it. As an end user, you might see only one side of it, but behind the scenes, all the work that goes into it is always mind-blowing. So I'm excited for today's conversation. All right. I love the enthusiasm. Now, I didn't prep you for this, David or Arul, but as I was thinking about what we discussed beforehand, I realized I really want to know the metrics that matter to gaming product managers, because I know some of it's going to be similar to others, but I think some of it's going to be specific to gaming. So I'm going to let whoever's willing to come off mute, but what are some metrics or what are as many metrics, maybe starting all the way from the beginning to awareness or even activation or download? What are the metrics that you're tracking without giving away company secrets and gaming? Yeah, I think um, at a high level, it starts with tracking. Everything in the app, you have to track taps, session, activity, monetization. Everything is a touch zone. Everything is a tap. So as soon as the user installs the app, the most important thing to know is where that user came from. And you do that through acquisition. So you have your different types of campaigns that users come from. For example, if a user comes from a Facebook campaign or Google campaign, or they come from or organically, they just install from the store. After the user installs your app, you can do quite a bit of heavy targeting. You can do A-B testing. You can show them a different UI depending on where they come from. You can show them uh, different offers. You can show them different content. You can show them different in-app purchase deals, like if a starter pack for a user who you may think is a low-paying user versus a high-paying user. So all of that happens immediately upon the install. So you have to know where they're from, and you have to immediately start tracking them as soon as they start tapping in your app. And then once you go from there, you create a profile from the user. Is this a user, a heavy spender? Are they a light spender? Are they a dolphin, a minnow, a whale? Does this person seem like they have a potential to have a, a long uh, lifetime value in the app? So all that comes through uh, DAUs, your daily active users, your MAUs, your, your monthly active users, that stickiness factor of how many days they come back to the app like within a month. Additionally, uh, the funnel tracking, the when users drop off. You also have your sessions, which is super important. How many sessions they have a day, how long in between their sessions. 
are they progressing long enough? Like, are they completing enough levels during one session? So all of those analytics come to an end where you have basically dashboards that you get either reported through, you know, Google Firebase, Mixpanel, Amplitude, all your product management tools that come in. And you as the product manager can shape and design these analytics to form data stories to help you build your next feature. So if you say, hey, a lot of users are coming into our app and they're leaving after a certain amount of time, let's build a feature to keep them hooked. Or, hey, our users are not spending money in a certain amount of time. Let's build some monetization and revenue features here. So at a high level, um, I did get in the weeds a little bit, but at a high level, I'm sure David might have some things a bit differently, but for, for me and my career, those are kind of the everything bundled up into one. Raul, just very quickly for clarification, built into some of those metrics you mentioned is cohort or cohort analysis or breakdown. Is looking at the metrics without cohorts something you do or are cohorts really important? Yeah, super important. So so cohorted users and basically creating these types of users and following them. So a users that do, let's say, 10 specific actions on their first session, we create a cohort for them. And then we follow them throughout the months to see when we monetize them or when they drop off. And then we build features to increase the longevity of those users in the app. So you could have, you know, up to 15 to 20 different cohorts of users. And what that does is on the back end, it creates targeting in your CMS. So you update your CMS every, you know, week over week, month over month of new features of, of targeting users who do set actions. And, and, and you could do that with those tools that I talked about, or you can create your own sort of targeting mechanism in, in the back end. Does that answer your question? I totally agree. So I mean, absolutely 100% of your, your spot on. Yeah, no, thank you for that clarification, because I think uh, the cohort piece is so fundamental, and we can talk about it a little more. David, over to you. I'm really glad that Raul got in the weeds, because much of what we do does overlap with what he does on his product. Minecraft is a little bit different in terms of what product managers do, typically for uh, mobile apps, for instance. So Minecraft is primarily on console and PC. We also do release on iOS and Android, but it's not a free-to-play product. It is a premium price product. And so the metrics that we focus on are a lot less on targeting and acquisition. And we really, really focus a lot of our analysis on engagement. So what do players do within Minecraft? A lot of our attention is spent on trying to uh, trying to learn what our players do, what they like, and try to make some inferences from that. And so, for us, the key metrics besides the kind of the usual MAU, DAU, and monetization is really just down to what do they do in a game, especially in a game like Minecraft, where it's a sandbox game in, by nature. And so, it's not necessarily predictable what players will do. For me, what is of particular interest is what do players do when they first sign on to Minecraft, and that's how many times do they get into combat? How quickly is it until they get killed by a zombie? Do they quit after they die? Those are things that help inform us on how we can make the, uh, make the gameplay a lot better over time. And for us, I think what we tend to focus on is more on what helps us engage with players on a long-term basis. And the one big difference I see in Minecraft that's a lot different than, say, most mobile games is that when we think of long-term, we are thinking about like a year. It's not unusual to see players play because and play and make creations on their sandbox. They could disappear for a week or two, and then they come back the next week. They could disappear for a month, 
and then they come back several months later. And so when I used to make games on mobile, we used to think long-term was anything beyond a month. So anything past 28, 30 days was like, if a player still plays your game after 30 days, you're in good shape. For us, we have to look at a much more longer time horizon. Also taking into account that players have already spent money uh, in purchasing Minecraft. And so there's a different sort of vested interest in how players will engage compared to a mobile free-to-play game. Hey, David, David, if I can ask, yeah, I think even in Minecraft, if, if people are just in the app and just sitting there and watching other people build, like even that is a, a good KPI, right? Just session time of doing nothing. And that may be an important you know, KPI for Minecraft, but for other apps, the user needs to be doing something, right? So every game and every app has their own type of KPIs they target, even if it means nothing to, to, to a different genre. So I just wanted to point that out, that it's not set in stone for every game what, what the KPI is. That's correct. So for Minecraft, for us, I think one of the things that we would tend to emphasize a lot is session length. And that may not necessarily be the case for a lot of mobile apps, for instance. They probably look at the number of sessions per day. That's not a metric that we tend to look at. Instead, we like to look at how long do they play and what are they doing in that time. And if there's, if it turns out they're standing around, i.e. they're not placing blocks or, or they're moving around, I mean, it's informative because it helps us also paint a picture of what type of players play in Minecraft. Because Minecraft spans such a huge population of players and it's cross-generational, it's impossible to describe what an average Minecraft player is. So instead, we we are always in a search for understanding who our players are, what do they prefer, what do they like to do. And so one of the approaches that we like to look at from a data science perspective is doing a lot of clustering analysis to see what type of archetypes do players sort of gravitate towards as they come into our game. Some players love combat. Some players really don't want to be involved in combat. Some players want to build things and want to progress. And some players don't really want to complete the game. Instead, they're just interested in creating art, for instance. And so all these things are very interesting to us because a really big tenant in what Minecraft is is that we want players to consume Minecraft however they feel. It is not for us to decide how Minecraft should be to players. It is whatever they make it, whatever they want it to be. And so that's very important for us. And so we would like to encourage players to do many different things. And if that includes standing around watching other people's play and living vicariously through watching other people, not even through in-game, but also on by streaming, that is also very important to us. And so we always like to learn about our players that way. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because another point for an app that I'm working on is a rewards app. And we have a bunch of clients and partners that we work with. And so for example, if you play a, a certain game and get to a certain level, then you come back to our rewards app and you can earn coins for completing actions in those other games. So a matter of fact, we it's better that users are not actually having a long session time in this app and that they're expending their sessions in other games that are generating those uh, monetization tasks for our app. So just wanted to state that point too. That's something that may be unique and different in gaming as well. That's fascinating because the metrics can sound like they're straightforward or the same, but depending on the what you consider valuable in the user interaction, Actually, the metric is very different. I have a question, something you mentioned, David, around the archetypes. So I want to just go back to the early days of the development of a game. And, you know, the fact that a lot of the games we have today have to 
have the ability to have community and to be shareable on Twitch and or, or available for people to watch. What does an MVP look like? And do you develop personas or archetypes early on? And how do you refine that throughout the life of the game? So that's an interesting question. We When we create features, we we think of MVP, and, and from my experience, both here at Mojang and, and other places previously where I've worked at, we actually use a term called minimal lovable product. It's sort of a, as a proxy for what the industry thinks of MVP. Because um, for something like Minecraft, it is, we have this very set of very high bar about what we produce out in, in production. And so when we create new content, uh, for us, there's different teams that will approach this differently. I think we have a general idea of several archetypes that tend to exist in our in our player space. And it helps inform designers to figure out what kind of pieces of content or what are new ways to create things in a game. And so when we release new content, and that's usually every six months and every or 12 months, uh, we do like a minor content every six and a major one once a year. We are very conscious about what kind of things players can do in our game. Like how does it expand or exist to play? And a lot of that is informed by the existing player behavior that we see. The second driving component is is inclusivity. Inclusivity is a really big piece of Minecraft because uh, we have players from virtually every country on earth that play Minecraft, every age as well. And so we always wanna make sure that the way that you consume Minecraft is inclusive, it's expandable, and it's it's not restrictive in any kind. And when we think about inclusivity, it's not just uh, cultures or by geography or by region, it could also be by play style. And so one of the things I find it's unique with the Mojang team, and this is a bit different across the different games I have worked on in the last 17 years or so, is that they intentionally don't want to make Minecraft for a specific archetype or a group of archetypes. It is almost a, a very different approach to creating Minecraft is, is how do we make it such that players have the ability to create their own experiences and stories? And that's what we see has worked because that is what generates a much more, from us, a much more healthier and diverse ecosystem. It's a one where players can make whatever content they want in ways that we can't even imagine. And so we intentionally try not to guardrail how players do things or how players create things with the sort of intention of trying to appease a particular demographic. The demographics are really there for us to help best inform what we're doing from a design standpoint. But it's not something that we kind of monitor like on a day-to-day basis and say, oh my gosh, like the people that want to build things are now doing more combat. I mean, looking at these things are interesting, but it's also, it's really more to help inform how do we create, what type of content or what type of direction we want to take Minecraft in the next year or two, two or three years. How about for you, Raul? What does your MVP or MLP most lovable product? Yeah, it's funny because we we call it the most likable product. (laughs) Like they don't have to love it. They have to like it. (laughs) A few people have to love it, but we try to, we try to get everyone to love it. Yeah. I think, I think the, the important thing, again, going back to um, the tracking is we don't know what people will or won't like unless we truly track every action in the app. So when we create uh, new features, for example, in our Lucky Level app, it was a casino app where you scratch cards. You know, like scratching cards is boring. So <laughs> let's do something more fun. Let's create a spin the wheel. Let's create a lotto. Let's create a raffle. And you don't know how deep to go down those features until you see which ones are 
played the most, right? So is is the strategy to build all of them all at once halfway and see which one stick or to go all in on, on one full feature and see if it's likable. So the best option is to go halfway on a few different features and see which one is liked. And, and you could do that through either A-B testing or you can do that through simply just tracking and, and then following up on implementing more features of what are double down on the features that, that users like. So I think having a likable product in mobile, you'll know within uh, three weeks if the product's liked or not. And then you have to make changes within four to five weeks, within the month to keep moving fast. A sprint is usually about a week and a half, two weeks. Um, and then a release would be about every um, two weeks, two and a half weeks would be a release. And so if you don't know if your MVP was a success after the end of like, uh, I don't know, maybe three weeks, four weeks, then you haven't tracked correctly or you're not looking at the right data. So that's how you're right. That's That's how fast we move in mobile in my career at least and we can let the data tell us very quickly what's liked however things are changing i think you know with discord and the community and branding i think branding is super important around your community i think chris chris is one of my uh, one of my friends he's in the audience and he works uh, uh his branding is it's his career in mobile and, and console as well and you know he'll tell you how important that is around storytelling around your product around the features to make it like, to make it lovable, to make the community understand how it's used. So if it does fail, it could just be that you have to make the tweaks to optimize it to what the community wants, not necessarily that it's a bad feature. Does that make sense that I explained that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the speed by which you work versus David's is very apparent. You know, you're hyper fast or your iterations are, <laughs> yeah. are shorter and you have a very specific approach and type of product. So I, I love that nuance and that difference. Jeff, over to you. All right. Great question, Sumeya. I love the interaction between our two product leaders here. We're talking gaming product management. We already spoke about the metrics that matter, and we're already starting to see kind of this tension a little bit between monetization and engagement, two different metrics that came up that may work in cross purposes. So I want to hear from each of you. Well, first describe that tension in your own words and how you think about approaching that tension. Uh, Let's start with uh, David. So this is a, a super interesting question, and I think one that every product manager, especially in gaming, struggles with. Because on one hand, we want to create a really cool and fun and engaging, sticky experience for players. I mean, making games is about creating fun. And so by nature, the key metric here is engagement. At the same time, most folks who are in the business are doing it to make money. And if you are on a, whether, regardless of whether you're on a mobile platform or a console platform, this tension exists because it's generally just not pleasant to pay money. If we think about just kind of the psychological economics of what a player experiences, you know, paying anything is not generally a great experience. Paying money for something. And so it's a constant struggle on how do you make this game really fun and engaging, while at the same time, you also want to draw revenue from that player. If you're on kind of the older style model, which is what we call box retail or premium pricing, which Minecraft falls under, the player has already paid a fee or you know they paid for your copy of the game, and now it's about them consuming. And there are opportunities to have them pay for different things, but we have to consider kind of what type of players are kind of playing in your game relative to, say, a game that is free 
So the player has not committed to anything, has not paid anything. And then it's about how do you create experiences that are valuable to the player, yet at the same time, that keeps the player engaged. So this tension exists because in games that do one or the other, usually on the monetization side, the too extreme, it often results in a really poor experience for the player. If not, it also almost invariably starts a debate about predatory game design. So for instance, uh, if we think about the overwhelming majority of free-to-play mobile gaming apps, a lot of it hinges on sort of getting the player to a state of, oh, well, if I would just buy buy this thing, then I can get this thing that's dangling right in front of me. There's definitely a lot of like carrot mechanics that get players to monetize. So a lot of impulse purchasing. And so on one hand, it's, you know, it's certainly a great experience. You can create a great experience around creating an impulse purchase opportunity. But at the same time, we have to be cognizant of the fact that players are indeed paying with real-world dollars and that if you kind of push the player too much and there's debate about like whether players are even realize it's too much, it can be a very negative experience in the long run. And so this is kind of where the tension happens, because from this, you have this debate about whether players are indeed well-informed, the fact that a lot of the player base can be children. And so this opens up a huge area of debate about gambling mechanics, loot boxes, and so on and so forth. Even things that are not of random nature, there's even a debate about how much is too much in terms of how you can monetize in terms of in-app purchases. And so there's this, there's this really big debate about this tension between like, we want to be able to make money, but at the same time, we also want to create a really fun experience. Because in the, the reality is, the money that you use from the players that do pay are used to fund and create those awesome experiences. And so the tension lies on Do you want to try to target all the players and try to sort of democratize spending? Or do you have a reliance on, say, like the whales, the people that spend hundreds of dollars or even sometimes thousands, if not more, per year on your game? And so there's this, there's definitely this tension between the two. Raul, what is your observation on this? Yeah, I think gaming gaming companies need to be we need to be smarter on the way that we engage our users these days. So, for example, like uh, if we're creating a, a village game or some type of uh, game where you invest a lot of time in, you know, we could print out some type of poster or some kind of uh, a 3D sculpture for you as a loyalty user. Or in the app, we can create special events just for you. Or in the app, we can create loyalty programs that give you things half off. Something to show that the time that you put into the app is worth it, that the company and the game is valuing you as a customer for playing their app. So then, you know, I'm not going to get in down the the NFTs and the crypto gaming, even though that is kind of a sense of play to earn, right? So do you own these items? Do you truly own these items in in these universes that you're playing? No, no, you don't, right? Because a company can just stop making the game tomorrow and then everything you've invested at best it can just go away so it's up to the community to create uh, it's up to the app to create a community to create these types some other things some other gamification concepts in and around and outside the app to help that engagement but other than that you know david's absolutely right you know you've heard us you heard him and me use the term whale and i don't know if everyone knows what the term whale means but the term whale is a person who spends a lot of money on specific items or just in the app itself and you could have your total revenue be, you know, 10% from these whales. And that is a bad economy. If, if 10% of your revenue, or sorry, if, 100%, if 90% of your revenue comes from a small cohort of users, 
that's a bad thing because it's it's not spread out. Because if you do something to upset these users, whether you create a new feature that they find is a paywall and, and blocks them from progressing quickly, or you you upset these types of customers, then then you lose you lose in the product. And it, that's the difference between you know being in and develop making a car or like you know being in the medical field or doing something. Mobile gaming is very you can lose your whole community if you do something in the app that jeopardizes the economy very quickly. And that's why we have fast burst for mobile, fast burst sprints and releases. And I think that's why console takes time to do iterations and updates like seasonal content to make sure that they do it right. It's focus tested, A-B tested. And because when you release it, you have to know it's going to work and you don't want to upset your economy. So, you know, the days of Game of Thrones where, you know, you come in and then you're hit with a, you know, $9.99 package to buy everything. And then you buy that and it's like, now you're a VIP, $29.99 package. Like those those days are kind of, to today that's kind of happens in apps where you just keep getting these boosts as soon as you come in the app. But the better apps find a way to, to keep you engaged, keep you hooked first, and then try to monetize you down the funnel. That's kind of my experience and sort of where I've seen the shift in, in gaming. Yeah, I, I can't wholeheartedly agree more. Like for me, my observation is that revenue is almost always a trailing metric to business health. It should almost never be the thing that you want to target because if your game is not healthy, if it's not highly engaged, it doesn't really matter what you do, what kind of monetization tricks you do. You can get a lot of revenue short-term, but that's about it. The product will not last in the long-term. This also opens up another interesting debate about, I think the term is is colloquially called as pay-to-win. And the idea here is that there are a lot of gaming apps out there that enable you to play and this has a gameplay effect that is detrimental to other players. So in games in which you have competition, it's almost like saying, well, let's play a racing game, but instead of having you and I having the same cars, if a person pays $5, they get a Ferrari, and a person who doesn't pay starts with a Toyota Corolla. Like That sort of mechanic, although it's kind of the way I described it is a very hyperbolic extreme version of it, you will see a lot of that in the industry. I don't particularly think that's a really great or healthy environment because invariably it ends to an over-reliance on those whales we just talked about. Once you get into a tailspin where your revenue is dependent on the whales, you've effectively allowed the tail to wag the dog, where essentially the whales dictate how you run your business. And that's not a good place to be. I have just a super tactical question. In product management, the way your organizations are set up, do you have a product manager who's in charge of more of like what's going to get people to want to buy the game. So like using the Kano model, seeing what's going to surprise and delight or wow them or what they want, and then have somebody else who's worried about monetization and, and engagement, or is it setups differently? And I don't know if you're allowed to answer that question based off of, again, I don't want you to reveal confidential secrets, but I'm just curious, how do you set up an organization, a product organization within gaming? I can take this question based on my personal experience. I think this actually varies from company to company. I've worked in gaming companies where there are dedicated product managers. Like For me, I used to be what they call a revenue PM, a revenue product manager, where the only thing I'm focused on is monetization and monetization design, pricing. And in terms of what keeps players engaged or how to acquire new players, there's a different product manager that works on that. And it could also just be my experience has evolved over the last 10 years, but I am still seeing now more that there is less of a siloing of or differentiation between like an engagement PM or revenue PM, because I think a good PM needs to be able to understand all three, engagement, acquisition, and monetization. 
So for me, good PMs will have not necessarily a mastery of all three, but at least they can be well-versed in all three. Because from my experience, working and focusing on engagement in a complete vacuum where you're not looking at engagement is foolish. You have to, as, even as a revenue product manager, you have to be paying attention to the sanctions, the same driving metrics that engagement product managers care about. And so from what my observation is, over the last, I would say, five years or so, I see product managers tend to be more generalists now, as opposed to there's one person specifying on, on revenue. But 10 years ago, that was definitely the case. It seems like there was a different type of flavor of product managers just because at the time, the free-to-play space was like expanding and growing exponentially. And so it felt like this was a problem that's super big and we have to have super deep analysis on every facet of the game, whether it's an acquisition, engagement, or monetization. But now I, I'm starting to see that we're getting a lot smarter in how we approach this. And so I think that these roles are being a lot more consolidated as we move forward. Yeah, David, I think you're you're spot on. Uh, it's interesting. Earlier in my career, when I was at GameLoft, we had we had a revenue PM, exactly what David's title was. We had economy designer, monetization manager, a community manager, a brand manager. <laughs> so we had you know ten people who weren't even on tech or design. They were just different managers and different elements. And today, on the team, we have a technical product manager another product manager and, and we actually uh, just uh, got another in, uh, hired an intern for the summer and the goal is for us to do all of these positions together holistically my thought is I, I say this i think i said this a few times to man jeff you probably heard this is to know 10 percent of everything and 100 percent of nothing and that that goes along with knowing 10 percent of what the growth manager does what the sales team does uh, what the economy looks like in the app what the tech behind the app and all that goes back to the customer and driving like what's the most engaging to the customer in, in each of these different fields and you have to be able to answer that as the product manager so yeah just wanted to add to, to that all right. This is so fascinating because I don't see this in the necessarily in the B two B world in that way. I definitely, you know, I've worked with growth hackers. I've worked with PMMs and operations products managers, but the the revenue manager role. I'm wondering if it has a different name in my world, like a GM. Is there a, a GM in the gaming world? Yeah, you could have the general manager of the group, but they would be responsible for, but they could be the head of the division. So you'd have the, is that what you mean by GM? Yeah, the general yeah, manager. So, yeah. yeah, so the general manager, but honestly, that is just a, a, a liaison between the stakeholders and the lead product manager. And at any mm -hmm. point, stakeholders can just easily tap the lead product manager and they should know exactly everything the GM would know. GM is more for like cost of team, cost mm -hmm. of tools, co like the cost of goods to check the bottom line of the team to ensure that we're profitable. So that's mm -hmm. some things that might be different from the PM who's more focused on the team. But uh, me in my position, I'm the head of product and, and I know both. And so you have a head of product or you have a, a lead product and that kind of takes the position of both the GM and the senior product manager. And, and you can have different mixes. And if that works with your corporation, that's great. But if you need more different types of structure, then for sure you could have two GMs. You could have one GM of product and one GM of revenue. I've seen that before as well. Thank you for that. David, how about you? Is that the same? So at Moje, we don't necessarily have the same, I would say, the depth for product management as a mobile app company. Uh, that's primarily because Minecraft sort of launched predating the time when free-to-play became super big. 
And so the organization is structured very similarly to most game studios, traditional AAA game studios with producers managing much of the operational aspect of game development. But over time, as games now become more of live ops services, that's where product management does come into play. And as a product manager, I think at Mojang, it's it serves much more of a generalist role. So it's definitely what I do is not siloed to just revenue or just engagement or anything. It's much more of a generalist where I help and support various business teams and help provide whatever need that they have from a product management or from a live operations perspective. And so that may be unique to just Mojang just because of its history, as well as sort of the products that we are managing right now. Minecraft is sort of a, you know, I think every game and every franchise is unique, but I think for the scope and scale of what Minecraft has, which is well over 100 million players a month, you cannot avoid it having a live ops component, even though it's a box retail product. And so as we start thinking about how do we staff and create support for these live operations, we split sort of this responsibility across various engineering teams. And product management currently is in support of all of those teams, but not as like as its own silo division. And this is a little bit different than say what I've seen in mobile app companies. One structure, David, that we did at uh, Tops that worked pretty well is we uh, we worked in pods. So we would have one designer, one project manager, and one QA, one CS agent, and one developer all in one pod, and they would be responsible for uh, revenue. And then we'd have another pod for tech or another one for new features. Or whenever we have a new feature, we just create a little pod. And they were all like basically committing code, testing, working on FAQs, and doing everything all at once to deliver the features. And that was fun. That was fun. That worked for that product group. There was five project managers, and each of them had their own pod. And there was no lead product manager that they reported to. And that worked for that team. That reflects much of what I did early on when I was a, when I was a product manager. But I think it's because at the time, we were making free-to-play games on Facebook and on mobile. So because of the highly iterative nature and also just how fast we released to market, it made all the sense in there to have pods. And I, was, I would be a product manager in one of those pods. All right. I'm loving both the exchange of ideas uh, across two experts in product management in the gaming industry and also kind of a historical, like what things were and how they're changing over time. This is a fascinating conversation. Sumeya, it is time for audience questions. And normally we have Red is Red the to do that. I don't know what to do. Are you some some do oh do you want some of your questions <laughs> i am here <laughs> are you ready uh Sumea, do you mind managing the stage here today uh, yeah my pleasure it's so good to see so many familiar faces here too if you have any question raise your hand and join us on stage i know we got one in chat so i believe uh raul you mentioned that the 90 10 split for whales is not a healthy one Joan asks if the 80-20 is better. And I want to just add to that, what is the ideal split and under which circumstance? I, I think for, you know, if you have to put a number on it, I think 60-40 is probably probably the best. Like 60% of your revenue comes from a, a small subset of VIP or whale users. But again, that this this is just my experience. And the other 40% comes from either new users or 
churning users, users who left the app and then came back, or maybe users who come from come organically or from campaigns that are not as successful as others. So, yeah, I think that's that's the high. What was the second part to the question, Samir? I think you answered it because <laughs> her question was, is 80-20 better? But uh, I wanted to get to basically what is the ideal one for you? But I understand that the ideal one in your scenario or in your situation or product might have certain constraints or considerations around it. So if I am taking the 60-40 rule, something I should consider, what are some of the factors you want the person to think through? Yeah, there's there's also the 80-20 rule in developing a feature in mobile. You know, 80%, you do what works, you know what works, what's worked historically, you know what makes money. And that 20% is that iteration and creativity. And when you start playing around with that, so if you create a new feature that has never been seen before, that's never had proof in another app, that's never then then you you're not gonna know those profiles of users, um, those cohorts of users who are gonna monetize that feature. And you can hit or miss, right? So if you want to play safe, you want to develop a feature that you know for a fact 80% of it is confirmed from either another app or from your R&D. And then you have that 20% of creativity. Now, there's other R&D projects. um, There's other sides of the house where they just have funding from the company where it's just fun money where you can just create, create, create and not worry about uh, losing revenue or not knowing, worrying about how you're going to generate revenue. And a lot of those uh, projects, they just, it's something interesting. I think the story with Slack and how Slack was made, there was a, a team that was building a game and then they needed a way to communicate with each other and they found the tools that were out there weren't weren't good enough. So they just created this tool to communicate with each other. And then they're like, you know what, let's uh, send videos to each other. Let's send files to each other. Let's have video calls. So they created it and now it's Slack. It just came up and it just happened. So that was like 100% creativity on their side. They built something that they just needed as a team and now it's sold at an enterprise level. So I kind of jumped around a little bit, but I just wanted to give that example. Thank you. And David, do you think about that number differently? Do you have uh, any yeah. other thoughts? Yeah. yeah. So the nature of Minecraft is that most of the things that we sell is additional content in the game. The overwhelming majority of what you can buy beyond just the the game itself would be the content that creators make in the marketplace. And by and large, we don't have anything that is consumable in nature. So there's no boosts, there's no extra lives, there's, there's none of that. The content that players buy are additional worlds. So brand new worlds, kind of what in the gaming space uh, we used to call DLC or downloadable content. So these are additional maps, additional worlds, skins for your characters. So these are all things that are durable in nature. Because of that, it sort of is a self, it sort of limits the the amount of money that one can spend because since the things that you buy are very durable in nature as opposed to things that are consumable as in like extra lives, like once you spend it, it's very temporal. And because of that, I think the in terms of the ideal revenue profile, which is not something I tend to look at for Minecraft, but I think ideally for us, democratizing spend, so having basically would ideally have the fewest number of whales. It's far better to have all players spend $5 than to have one person's than to have one person spend five hundred dollars. That that's not a goal of ours is to get anyone to spend five hundred dollars. But also it's in part because 
we're cognizant that a large segment of our player base are young children. And so when we think about when we're selling content to players that we know are children, really what we're selling to is a parent-child dyad. And so part of that comes with that responsibility of what we can or cannot monetize. And so we tend to take a very conservative approach when it comes to the stuff that we monetize. We offer things that are durable in nature. They are whole new worlds, additional content you play, no loot boxes, none of that. Because of that, the revenue profile will be extremely different. I have a quick follow-up, and this is a question that I know Jeff feels uh, passionate about, which is the question of ethics. When we talk about whales, and I personally have heard uh, an NPR <laughs> segment on people losing their homes because they got so addicted to games and spent so much money on them, $5 at a time or $10 at a time. I'm curious about how you think about ethics, some of the hard questions and long-term implications you have to think through as a PM. Yeah, I think I think uh, having um, a community manager or others on your team to help keep you focused on that. And I think as PM, sometimes you get lost of deep down specific KPIs, whether it's revenue or extending your LTV, lifetime value of the customer, or the annual revenue per user, you're, you're trying to get a certain amount by a specific day. So having, you know, having these like focus groups or looking to the community, that and also with tracking, have you ever browsed on TikTok and then one of the videos comes up and says, hey, you've been scrolling for a long time. You should stop scrolling and go to bed. <laughs> that, that type, those types of messages pop up because the app is identifying you as a, as a user who may have been on that, their app for, for too long. That may be unhealthy. If you've seen that message, I'm sorry. You're you're totally healthy. Everything's great. But uh, I'm just saying, uh, in gaming, we we notice we have to notice that as well. And whether it's you know you you do that through different types of pop up, different types of messaging, we can set those types of thresholds where, for example, you can only redeem gift cards every three hours, or you can only that's enough money you've earned today. Come back tomorrow to earn some more. So you could set thresholds on that if you feel people may be overplaying in a sense where that you feel like it's unhealthy. I think more so in casino apps, uh, any type of lottery apps, things like that, um, you know, you only get a certain amount of games you can play before you have to watch ads or certain spins and things before you have to actually start paying. And that goes with the paywall structure of slowing you down. I can see, we can all see how that can actually go towards you wanting to spend to uh, to bypass that. So when that happens, the app has to find other ways to to shut that down from an ethical standpoint. I think, I think it's super important. I've only worked on one casino app my whole career, so that can tell you how I feel about the genre. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank yeah. you for sharing that, Raul. For Minecraft, we look at this as a serve as an implicit responsibility. Knowing that Minecraft is a cross-generational title, much of it is consumed by children, very young children, uh, as early as like three or four. Not to sound self-righteous or anything, but we as a studio have taken a stance on what we do and don't do around monetization. And we, we kind of draw a pretty thick red line on that. Knowing that we have a, a sort of a, an implied responsibility to the community, we we've intentionally taken steps to prohibit ourselves from not doing things on on Minecraft. So specifically, 
We don't do loot boxes. We don't do things that are even perceived as predatory just because there are children involved. We presume that in that environment that we want to make every purchase or any offer as value added and as transparent as possible, that there should be no misunderstanding about what players are buying. And that goes in hand in hand with a few tenants that at a studio and at a strategy level that really govern what we do. So trust and safety is a term that you hear in many creator ecosystems, and it's one that Minecraft takes absolutely seriously. So we, for instance, and this creates a lot of tension between going back to kind of the engagement versus monetization. A classic example would be guns. Like, for instance, we have a creator ecosystem where creators can create any sorts of content. But one of the things that we generally frown or don't really allow is you know, having violent content on our ecosystem. Now, we know that violent content sells, that there's no question about it. Guns sell, shooting games sell, but we choose not to sell those types of games on our creator ecosystem because it's one of the tenets that we have to ensure the safety and really to ensure that we have the trust of their parents. It's just a really good razor for us to make decisions on. It doesn't mean that we'll never sell guns, but it always means that we are very conscious about who our customers are. And trust and safety is one of those decisions that we make that really overrides almost any other consideration. And that includes monetization and in some cases engagement. And so we do take that upon ourselves to, to create like extra two, three, four steps ahead to make sure that everything is as safe and as reasonable as possible. And it should be very unambiguous as to like what we're doing. So that's one of the things that we focus on quite a bit in our franchise. The second one is to make sure that the things that we do in Minecraft is on brand. So one of the uh, questions, which can be challenging, is basically is, is this a Minecraft thing to do? And it's really hard to describe what that is, but what it kind of means is if we're going to do a new feature or we're going to try to explore a way to monetize something, is that something that the community would expect and is acceptable or does it feel gross? And if any time that like anyone will say, yeah, that feels gross, chances are we're not going to do it. And so that those are kind of like the two main overarching rules because it it's very on brand and on, on in alignment with what we want to do with Minecraft and as a studio and also as just as a member of the interactive entertainment community. One of the primary tenets that we have and it's kind of like if we had a mission statement about what Minecraft is is that we want to improve or better the world through the power of play. And that's a governing principle that we have, whether we want to launch new products, figure out new features, offering new services. It really has to be in alignment with that tenant. And so I would say that the, when we think about what we can or cannot do in terms of monetization, it's not really so much at a feature or tactical level, it's more at a strategic level. David, one, one KPI that I think is super interesting is for companies like uh, you know Minecraft and Roblox is to know when children are playing with their family members, um, their grandparents or their parents, you know the Minecraft moms and you know the Roblox grandparents, and it's just interesting. I know that's a tough KPI to get, but you know maybe the experience can be different when you know that uh, children are playing with you know grandparents or parents versus like children playing with other children. It's a different type of imagination and storytelling within gaming, which is which is a super cool KPI, if that's it, ever found out. 
I agree. It would be super cool, but identifying who is a child and who isn't is also very difficult, uh, if if not very mm-hmm. restrictive. There's only so much we, we can actually capture in terms of who our player demographics are. And age is one of the challenging ones, especially with a lot of laws governing what you can or cannot capture. So knowing who is a child is actually challenging enough. Knowing what they're doing in relation to non, non-children accounts is also uh, even harder. All right. I'm loving the exchange of ideas. We are actually out of time. Sorry to cut short. I think I could listen to you, David and Raul, exchange ideas for hours if the time was there. So uh, we want to get to concluding thoughts from each of you. But first, I know Simea probably has to go first. And Simea, what what did you take away from this conversation that you hope product managers either in gaming or beyond would also take away from this? A couple of things. I think user value is something that doesn't change when we're building great products. And I love the nuance that we got to today, lovable versus likable versus the different kinds of releases and launches and iterations and the thinking that goes into them. Um, And then also talking about, you know, the build out or the composition of the teams. This was an awesome conversation loved hearing, you know, something really different than what I work on in the B2B world. So thank you for being open and for the vibrant sharing of ideas. All right. Thank you, Samaya, for being here and stepping in for Red, both asking good questions and reading the questions from chat and sharing your own insights as well. Appreciate it. Before I get to concluding thoughts from David and Raul, this is this has been a great conversation and I want to have another industry-specific product management conversation. So please enter into chat what industry we should do next. Uh, today was gaming. What should we do next? Enter that into chat uh, if you're here live on Clubhouse. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Jeff Schulman, and send me a note of what industry you want to hear next on how to succeed in product management. Uh, Raul, what do you want to leave the audience with? We had quite a vibrant discussion on many dimensions. What are concluding thoughts or bullet point takeaways you want to leave everybody with? Yeah, I, th- I think anyone can be a product manager. You know, there's just, there's just you know, misconception that you need to have bunch of fancy degrees you have to take a bunch of classes if you really care about a product you study up on it you study about the company you want to join you take as many like smaller certifications as you can for free and and really study up then start small and, and apply to these companies like don't be scared to get in early in your career and and you know get rejected you know i came in through focus groups and then from there at gameloft i went into market research and then boom i was in product it was, it was quick. So you can come in as QA, you can come in as customer service, you can come in in other positions than just, you know, a high level product manager versus maybe some other companies and genres, different types of occupations where you may need a certain amount of degrees. Now, if you get into technical product management and design product management, there may be certifications that you need, but general high level overall product management, don't be scared to dive in and, and learn the product and fall in love with it and apply for positions. So I think that can go a long way. All right. Thank you, Raul. David, any concluding thoughts or takeaways you want to leave the audience with? I agree. Anyone can be a product manager. And for me, what makes a good product manager is somebody who consumes consumes their product. So in the case of uh, video games, if you're if you play video games, that does go a long way in being a product manager. I think having passion for the products that you make really helps you envision yourself in the shoes of your customers and the people that you're trying to create experiences for. And so I think that's one big prerequisite is loving the things that you make. 
The other one I, I look for uh, when I look for product matches is I look for product matches who are intellectually curious. And so I like product matches who ask interesting questions and are thinking about what are new ways that we can look at customers? What are new types of data? Or what kind of new features that we can make? I like people who ask curious questions. So you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to have the person that has an MBA or a PhD or have all these degrees or certifications. For me, I'm looking for someone who is intellectually curious. All right. Thank you, David and Arul. Really appreciate it. Again, my name is Jeff Shulman. I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. Uh, we host these conversations every single week on Clubhouse and put them out as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast so that we can help create a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. We want to make sure that access to knowledge is not limited to just those who could pay for it. And so we've been working hard to bring you some of the best product leaders like David and Raul and, and Sumeya is here every single week so that you could learn what it takes to succeed in product management. I want to acknowledge a couple companies that have been along in this journey with us, helping us on, on a several dimensions. Uh, we've got Inclusive Product Management Accelerator Program, which is trying to broaden access to economic opportunity, uh, helping uh, empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to get into product management. Amazon, Salesforce, and T-Mobile are platinum sponsors on that program. And Starbucks is a silver sponsor. So super grateful for their support. And then we recently had the Inclusive Product Management Summit, where we brought together hundreds and hundreds of people to learn about how to manage inclusive teams, manage stakeholders inclusively, and to build inclusive products. And uh, grateful that uh, Axon, Motorola Solutions, Zillow and Microsoft were gold sponsors and Amazon coming in yet again as a platinum sponsor, uh, really supporting our efforts to develop a more diverse, inclusive and skilled product management community. If you want to be involved in anything that we're doing as a speaker right here on stage or volunteer helping in one of our programs, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or you could Google the Product Management Center and find our, our page online. And I think there's a volunteer form. That wasn't very specific, but connect with me. I'd love to get you involved in inspiring the next generation like David and Raul have done here today. Uh, so see you next week here on Clubhouse and have a good week. <laughs>